Welcome to the Just for a Change podcast, powered by the Bertha Center for Social Innovation and Entrepreneurship. First off, what you need to know about us is that thinking differently and innovatively about solving big social issues is what makes us tick. We love offering new perspectives on social innovation and social justice. So we hope you'll be inspired to make a difference wherever you are. We're changing the way, we're changing the world. Welcome to the Just for a Change podcast with me, your host, Kinsi Khatebe. Living through the pandemic has taken its toll on all of us, from young to old and in various degrees of severity. Many of us are coming to grips with the longer term impact of COVID-19, personally, in our communities and globally. We've seen the impact of COVID-19 on the way we work, the struggles of marginalized groups like foreign migrants and those who are homeless. We've also witnessed a sharp uptick in reports about gender-based violence, issues related to mental health and the rise in food insecurity. A unique segment of the population that has been hardest hit is young people. As schools and universities have been closed for the last few months, we've seen how challenging it is to ensure equitable access to education. Even though moving online was seamless for some, the challenges, confusion, and stress that many students experienced as a result of lockdown was intense. Young graduates and those entering the job market for the first time are doing so during a perilous economic context. The government has cut its economic growth forecast by half, and this is in a climate where over 50% of young people are unemployed. However, despite this, during this COVID-19 crisis, we have seen young people take up the mantle and lead some of the most significant initiatives and responses to the pandemic. This includes entrepreneurial endeavors, leading social action, and taking on positions that have challenged institutional complacency. When we talk about life post-pandemic, we need to ask ourselves, what is the possibility and power of the youth's role in reimagining our society post-COVID-19? A keystone of systems thinking is acknowledging, understanding, and working with causal relationships. So what are causal relationships? Well, in a systems thinking approach, it's about being able to recognize how elements or factors influence each other within a system. Let's consider an example where society tends to have a simple understanding of a very complex issue. Perhaps you've heard of the narrative that the youth are apathetic and not as industrious as the previous generation. However, the reality and the scope of the issue is much broader and deeper. We know the economic inequalities spread across race, class and gender affect the life outcomes of many young people. And in South Africa, those who are most disadvantaged, whether it's with access to education, healthcare or basic services like housing, water and electricity. There are very real structural and systemic barriers that skew access to opportunities for young people. In the time of COVID-19, we have seen clearly the causal effects of lockdown policies globally on diverse issues, including maternal and child health care, hunger and malnutrition, domestic violence and employment, illustrating how everything is interconnected. Many of these causal relationships were already known and have merely been highlighted during this time. A systems approach looks to identify leverage points at which to target interventions. Leverage points can be described as places within a complex system, a corporation, an economy, a city, an ecosystem, 
where a small shift in one thing can produce big changes in everything else. Without successfully identifying leverage points for systemic action, responses will inevitably be scattered and results less effective. All is not lost, however. And in this episode, we're going to explore some of the work youth and youth organizations are doing and the way that young people are engaging in the possibilities of rebuilding society after COVID-19. We decided to ask some young people what it's like being a young person in South Africa in 2020. Here's what they had to say. Uh, it's been a big challenge for being a youth in SA in this 2020 because we've been dealing with a lot of challenging in our community. Um, first of all, I would like to change in the communities is to take off the youth from the street and give them activity to do. It's difficult due to um, the coronavirus that is happening now. Uh, lack of finances, you know, being retrenched at our jobs sitting at home watching tv 24 7 having no day having no um productive day my hopes for the future is to be become a great leader and encourage the youth to come along to do uh progress and such big difference i wish that there could be more people who are coming to scout talent in my community because we are a, we are a small community first of all that is based on the southern side in Cape Town and and opportunities are scarce. They are very scarce. In our second Just for a Change episode, we chat to Alana Bond from Lucha Lunaco. Lucha Lunaco is a youth development lab that helps build pathways to decent work through partnership, collaboration and innovation. Lucha Lunaco envisions a world where youth use their agency and skills to access sustainable and decent work with the ability to build aspirational careers. We're also joined by Chad Robertson, a young innovator and entrepreneur who went through the Student Seed Fund program, an initiative of the Bertha Center and the SAB Foundation that is open to all UCT, UCT Graduate School of Business and Raymond Ackerman Academy students. Chad started a social enterprise called Regionize, and their focus is on making recycling accessible, inclusive, and rewarding. Celebrating Youth Month recently has once again been a great reminder of the power and potential of the youth as changemakers in our nation. After all, they make up a third of the population. Though they are faced with many challenges, many are able to change their perspectives and see some of the challenges as opportunities. It will be crucial to involve and empower them in the recovery of the country post-COVID-19. And we would be ignorant and unwise to underestimate the creativity and innovative solutions they can bring to the table. Chad and Alana, welcome to the Just for a Change podcast. I know we aren't sitting in the same room together. We're actually doing this online because of COVID-19. But thank you for making the time to, to join us and welcome to the podcast. Chad, I wanted to start a little bit with your story. Um, I was on your website and I was reading your profile and there was an interesting statement that really struck a chord with me. And I'm going to read it. And it says, um, and this is like sort of like what motivates you. And it says, you're on a mission to disrupt social norms and discover your superpowers to help make the world a better place. And I'm curious about when you talk about superpowers and we're speaking metaphorically, what are the kinds of superpowers that you think young people today need to reimagine the, a different world for themselves? Yeah, I guess it's just, you know, belief in yourself um, and belief in the vision that you want to bring into the world. 
Um, the, when I use the word superpowers, you know, it could mean anything, just taking a risk, making the change, being the voice. Um, you don't have to fly, but you know, you, you can do something. It contributes to seeing that vision. And so for youth, um, there's so much opportunities. There's so many things they could do, you know, to bring that vision into the world. And I think just taking action, um, and like I said, speaking out, that could be a superpower in itself for the youth themselves. That's really interesting when you talk about taking risks, taking action. I think those are really pertinent, um, I think, points. And, and I think it segues quite nicely into, Alana, some of the work that you're doing at Lucha Lunaco. And you speak about creating a mindset shift in young people. And for me, when I read that, and especially around some of the radical transformation that we speak about, I think over the last decade, we've seen some of the most important and significant movements being led by young people. I'm thinking about Roads Must Fall. I'm thinking about Fees Must Fall. Albeit they were in the higher education space, but they did have significant institutional impact. So when you're thinking about mindset shifts and radical action, what do you have in mind when you use that terminology? I think that um, it's so important that young people use their the, the, the amazing energy and creativity that they have for positive change. Um, and I think that you know, we, we in South Africa and then possibly around the world are on a bit of a, a precipice where it could potentially go either way. Um, and, you know, f for me, that radical change looks like using um, the, 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 that, that positivity and that, that belief and that, um, that energy uh, for creating uh, the, the positive change and channeling down positive um, channels. And, for me, it's very important, I think, that, that we engage then um, positively with young people and that they do so with us as well. We, we need to be careful about, um, you know, when, when, when we get to the point of burning things and, um, you know, th that's the point at which I think youth are so frustrated that they feel that's the only way that they're going to be heard. And so for me, the mindset shift, and I totally understand, um, although I haven't been in that position, I can understand how young people might feel that way and that that's, that's what they need to do in order to be heard. Um, but I think it's so important that if we're going to see change going forward, that, that, um, that young people find a way to, to verbalize and, and do that in a different way. So, and I think that brings me back to, back to you, Chad. I, I mean, you followed the, the entrepreneurial route, um, which I think for a lot of young people who do have the opportunity to go to university, you know, the narrative is graduate, look for work, and then maybe, you know, if there is an opportunity, you might start your own company. And what's really interesting is that the narrative around young South Africans is often that we don't have a strong entrepreneurial streak and what you were speaking about earlier, taking risks. So I think linking a little bit of what Alana is speaking about with some of the frustration and some of this, this narrative that we paint about young people, how do you think we can support and encourage that spirit and that energy for taking risks and being entrepreneurial? Yeah, um, I think one would be, you know, sharing stories is really critical. Um, I don't think there's enough stories shared about local entrepreneurs doing great things. Um, they are not magnified. They are not highlighted enough. Um, you know, there's a story now and then but I think they need to be further highlighted. Um, I came across a story a few months ago of um, entrepreneurs from you know a few decades ago, and it was really inspiring for me as well and kept me motivated to pursue my mission. Um, so I think stories and sharing those stories, success, successes is great. Um, and like you said, there's ample opportunity out there. There's plenty of resources available. They need that motivation. Um, and I think stories could, could help with that. Um, 
other things such as you know access to finance is tricky because um, generally you need to you need to have assets or you need to have money to get money um, and so new ways of financing operations is important um, I know Bertha Center has come up with a, like the, a few interesting funds that focus you know on impact and and green financing which is really helpful um, especially in the social entrepreneurship context and then I would say there's, there's still further need for education and training. You know, it's pointless just giving someone access to finance. Um, they need to have that motivation there, and that could be helped by sharing stories. Um, they need to have access to education and training, and as well as support throughout the journey. Um, and so, yeah, I think we have the climate is there. We just need to get the youth more involved and show them that it is possible, regardless where you come from, um, that you can make it. And it's not only it's not the the success is not only meant for a few, but many can get all that pie. It's interesting that you say that, Chad. Um, I'm reflecting about what you're saying about access to finance, about telling these stories, and it brings me almost back to to Alina and and the work that Mitchell Lunak is doing. And I'm thinking specifically about the Youth Innovation Partnership that was launched with Impact Hub and and Bertha Center. And and in that work, you touched on the fact that we've been doing youth development work for a while. Um, but despite all of the investment and the resources that have been put into this, you know, space, we're actually not seeing some of the significant changes that we'd like to see. And when I go back to sort of like systems language, we often would describe this as a wicked problem. And a wicked problem basically speaks about something that is complex and difficult with many moving parts. So there's no real, you know, silver bullet. And you propose that we need a new theory of change when we're thinking about youth development. And I mean, reflecting on what Chad has been saying about these stories, about access to finance, about opportunities, what does that new theory of change look like? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that everything that Chad said really resonated with me, um, and and I would totally agree. Um, we we've what we've observed is a, is a theory of change that seems to exist in South Africa, which says that you know give young people work experience and um, and maybe it's progressed from there to to some workplace readiness, and then young people will be able to get jobs. Um, and and I believe that I would extend that, you know, your question to Chad was around entrepreneurs, but I would extend that to to entrepreneurs and, and small business owners and, and that as well. Um, and, you know, I, I've been operating this space for a while and my, my observations across hundreds of young people is that that's simply not the case. And um, the, the new theory of change that, that, that we propose is says that we believe young people need foundations. Um, and, and those are our typical human adult foundations that, that most of us, we all build to some extent as we grow up from a young age in, in, into, into an adult. Um, and, and our observations are that, um, certainly in South Africa, that a lot of young people have got gaps in those foundations and those foundations aren't as solid as they might, uh, as they could be. Um, and we also know that, uh, we know that our gender-based violence in South Africa is, is, is significant. We know that Poverty and, and inequality in South Africa is significant, and therefore, I think a lot of young people, and, and this is true, of course, for, for I think everybody across the board experiences trauma to some extent, and trauma sits on a spectrum, um, and and so some people may experience more trauma than, than others, and, um, and and people who experience more trauma are are, are likely to 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 experience more um, results of that trauma. And, and I think that then makes it difficult. The trauma, what we found in particular, makes it, it's difficult for young people to face certain things because of that trauma. And they might not know that. 
young people need to be able to build enough of, of a foundation in terms of their character and confidence to be able to then focus on addressing those traumas, as well as being able to take advantage of the opportunities that they that they get given. That's part of that mindset shift, um, as well as uh, then going forward around grasping education opportunities and other opportunities that come their way. Again, that education, we believe, sits on top of a foundation. And we can't just throw workplace readiness and technical skills at young people and, and they're suddenly going to, they're suddenly, suddenly going to grasp that and now they're going to get a job and progress. You know, we, we've, we've got to build a, a, a set of foundations first. And then just on the financial side of things, you know, um, I've seen around the world, and it's 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 and, and in South Africa as well. It's a very privileged thing to be able to go and work as an intern for free somewhere. And there's the sense that that doing that is uh, a sign of your grit and your resilience and your commitment to learning and growing and all of those things. And I I feel that it it is a privileged thing because many people get to go home and stay with their parents, and their 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 parents are paying for their transport and all kinds of things like that. And we have a large large number of people in this country. Fifty eight percent of of young people are unemployed. So sorry, so could I add that, Alana, please? Yes, go ahead, Chad. Yeah, so just from a personal experience we've had, um, which touches on Alana's example, the last one. So there's an organization which gets, you know, interns from the States um, and they they go through a program here in Cape Town, obviously before COVID, uh, this year it's virtual. And then they get placed within startups throughout um, Cape Town as well. Some in software development, some in data science, some in management, accounting, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, you know, at first I could see the benefits of that because these kids are coming from first world countries. Um, they're students at university. They're taking their summer vacation um, and they, they're using that summer vacation. They're paying quite a big fee to come to Cape Town, have some fun, but also learn at the same time. Um, whereas with local youth, um, you know, just the, 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 the whole proposition of having to work for free, it's, it's a totally different mindset. Um, and obviously people can't afford it. Um, one, because they need transport to get to an office, they need money for food, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and from that early stages already, we're seeing that this advantage just based on, you know, where people are placed and obviously their income. Um, and it's, it's as a, I guess as a small business who's now, you know, employing interns and employees, it's, it sucks to kind of see that because you want to empower the local youth, um, but the local youth's mindset is very much fixated on this permanent job. Um, they're looking for permanency, they're looking for safety. Um, whereas these youth coming from first world countries, they just want to learn, they want to, they want to get something out of it and then move on and should contribute to their career moving forward. Um, and if, for example, government saw that as an opportunity and not just giving people, creating a job, but letting them learn, which is more important than just giving them a job because um, lessons and education is more value than just getting a job that's going to count for, st for stats. It's really interesting that I think both of you are reflecting on the structural barriers that make it difficult for young people to find um, and take advantage of opportunities, whether it's in the labor market or starting their own business. And I think what's really interesting about that is that when we're thinking about, and Lana, this was reflecting on some of what you were saying, a lot of what you're speaking of, sort of like the mental health aspects, the education aspects, the role of government, Chad, that you were speaking about is 
even though we're talking about youth development as sort of like this one composite idea, but it's actually, there's so many different players, whether it's, you know, at a policy level, whether it's NGOs, there's so many different individuals that are doing different things that are having, you know, an impact wherever they're playing and within their own ecosystem. But when we're thinking about some of the, you know, transformational and sustainable change, the big long-term, you know, fixes as it were, what do you guys think are some of the, I suppose the leverage points, if we would, that we actually need to be picking on that would actually build some of that, I think, some of the the kinds of changes that we're trying to see? Sure. Um, I think Alana alluded to it. Um, you know, there's, it, it really starts at the fundamental stages. Um, and, you know, we could really go back to quite a few things and there's a lot of aspects around this. Um but I've seen this, this this journey as well with as a youth from out from from South Africa and in Cape Town, um, where you know at a, at a certain level things just change for everybody, um, and that especially happens at stage after high school. Um, there's this there's this big change that happened with there's only so much youth that gets to go to university, and the mindset, for example, is that if you don't get to university your failure. And so from a household level, I think it's really fundamental that we change that narrative of you need to get your matric, you need to go to university or else you're a failure. Um, I think that itself creates a big um, culture in South Africa where that you need to have this in order to succeed. And that already, I could say, maybe counts for half the unemployed youth, maybe just that mindset. Um, obviously not a, a fact check number, I'm, I'm just making an example, but you know, mindset's so important and we need to kind of get away from that um, society where we believe that you have to do this in order to be successful. Um, there's many people that, that don't need to go to university that can make success of them. And so I think one of those factors are just, you know, parenthood um, and how they bring their children up and the type of lessons they are imparting with it to those kids. Um, and I think, for example, as, as, as a, again, as a youth, um, my parents were quite supportive of me going the entrepreneurial journey, even though I, I had gone to university, um, but it's not the case for many people. And so you know, maybe just a narrative change from a parenting point of view could also be a fundamental change of how this outcome is regarding um, youth unemployment, um, and youth entrepreneurship, and then just make being open to, to make that change. Kense, you know, uh, the, the the reason for that is because, and, and you, you you alluded to it earlier. You used the word a wicked problem, um, and that's so true. And you know, we we have a we have a youth ecosystem. Uh, to your point, so, you know, th there's lots of players in that space. There's probably lots of players that don't even know that they're in that space. But, you know, that ecosystem is still a bigger South African ecosystem. You know, the youth aren't separate. The youth are, are inherently part of, 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 of who we are um, and, and inherently part of our um, society and our communities and our um, economy. It's not a separate thing. And, and so it's so difficult, I think, to answer that question because, you know, in, in order for this, in order for us not to need youth development, we, we, I think need, um, to, to address our gender based violence and, um, you know, all of those challenges. Uh, we, we've got to address the poverty issues. We've got, you know, young people growing up in, in circumstances where they can't eat food. And if they don't have food, how do they learn? Um, and then we know that our education system is what 134 out of 138. Uh, in 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 the world in terms of um its its quality level um so you know those and those are not things that we can solve you know just 
we just click our fingers and, and we've solved them. You know, they all are, they're interrelated and you can't solve those problems without solving a bunch of other systemic challenges within our society and our economy and probably our politics as well. Um, and then, you know, I think the point about going to university is a, is a great one because there, there is a, um, a mindset in South Africa, and it's not necessarily even a youth mindset. I think it's very much a corporate business mindset that if you don't have a degree, then you're not really worth something. Um, and um, and we, we've got to change that. And we've also got to change this challenge of the cost of university. Um, you know, I, I am sadly no longer a youth <laughs> by a few years now. But if, if, you know, I did the maths when we had the fees must fall. And, and I think that I worked out that, um, the, the tertiary education was somewhere between two and three times the cost in real terms of what I paid in my last year of university. You know, that's not inflation related. That is, that is huge. And, and, you know, I come from a privileged background, um, as a, as a, as a white person. And, you know, my mom had to work at UCT so that we could, I could afford to go to university and not have a student loan. So, so the cumulative effect on most of our society is huge. And then there's also the issue of matric. So, you know, if I were to pick something that we could maybe influence as opposed to changing this whole system with all of its cogs and things like that, I would probably pick the matric because I don't have the stats in front of me, but if you, if you look at the percentage of people who start school, I think it's something like only 50% of young people finish school and only a percentage of those get a matric exemption, or, or sorry, let's say pass matric. Um, and for almost any job in South Africa, uh, matric is a is a requirement. So, I, and that's one of the things we're focusing on is pathways to getting a matric or a matric equivalency, because that opens up so many doors for young people. It opens up doors for further study. It opens up doors for jobs, and it opens up doors for um, you know future future pathing to to better far better paid jobs. Again, I don't have the stats in front of me. It's in our report that we did um, that uh, it's, it's some, it's some crazy percentage that young people earn or people earn more, uh, more than if they have a matric and a tertiary qualification versus if they don't. I think what's really interesting about both of your responses as I'm reflecting on them is how in as much as we're talking about, you know, entrepreneur, having an entrepreneurial mindset or having a mindset that allows you or motivates you to take risks and opportunities. Some of the foundational issues that you're pointing to, um, Chad, you were speaking about, you know, family support, having that and knowing that you could go out there and start your business, knowing that you had your family to support you. Um, and it's interesting. And, I'm, and I guess I'm bringing it all back to the reason why we thought this, you know, we would bring both of you together is that you were involved in, you know, entrepreneurial endeavors in your own, you know, individual work. And I'm reflecting that we're bringing this back to issues that might not necessarily be considered, you know, issues that entrepreneurs would traditionally deal with, you know, mental health that we spoke about earlier. Um, we're speaking about, you know, inequality and poverty. What do you think, um, whether it's small business owners or entrepreneurs, what can they lend to these conversations that we're having? where we're thinking about a social issue that is connected to a much to, to other bits and pieces in the system, as you were saying, Alana, how do we bring those pieces together in your own experiences where you've seen that work? And maybe I can start with you, Alana, and some of the work that, that you're doing with Lucha Lunaco. I've observed that, that young people in this country, um, I don't know if it's this country specifically, but seem uh, very, very afraid of failure. Um, and, and, you know, the, the, the very nature of being an entrepreneur means you need to embrace failure. In fact, 
I've done quite a bit of work at the very early stage of, of, of businesses, social enterprises, and, and trying to get funding for that. And people love to talk about innovation, and, and then they want to preserve their capital. And I'm like, you know that innovation equals failure. So there's, there's, this, um, there's almost this sense that failure is a bad thing. Um, and, and it's really not. What we need to do is learn from failure as opposed to let failure cripple us. And there's a there's a very interesting movement um, around the world which I've I've had access to via Impact Hub, and um, I don't think I can probably say the whole word, but um, it's called F Up Night, and you can extrapolate on that for the purpose of the podcast. I, I, I will I'll keep it clean, um, but they actually deliberately go with the whole word, and it's it's this it's this fantastic evening where you know four entrepreneurs come and they talk about all of their mess ups and how they failed. And it's a very liberating thing. And I think that it's liberating for entrepreneurs who, who are afraid of failure. But I think it's that kind of thing can be very liberating even for young people in this country. Again, it comes back to the storytelling that Chad was referring to earlier, which I think is so important because as humans, we are actually wired for storytelling. It's, it's how, it's how we, all of our knowledge was passed down before we could read and write, um, was storytelling. And, um, I think that if, if we can, if we can allow people to get that, that sense, it comes back to mindset shift as well, that failure isn't, isn't the terrible thing that cripples you. It's, it's a way of learning and you just simply pick yourself up and, and you move forward. As an entrepreneur myself, um, not coming from a very privileged background, I had that fear myself. Um, and I, I don't think I would have been as comfortable with failure if I hadn't, you know, gone and studied and actually worked professionally before starting my business, um, if I'm being honest. Um, and, it, and again, it's almost like this, it's, um, I would say, a very first world rhetoric where, you know, you need to fail, fail and fail fast. But the reality is, you know, in South Africa, people don't have that comfort to fail because they don't have, you know, um, a big savings where they don't have their mom and dad to take care of them. They need to go and work. They need to bring money into the family, into the households. Um, and so, yeah, I think that that comfort with failure is not just a thing of mindset, but it's a thing of, I have nothing to fall back on. You know, I don't have this, this comfort of just going back home and staying with my parents or living in their garage. Um, and so, how we go about, you know, allowing people to be comfortable with failure, that is an interesting topic, which I'd love to explore more. And I think we should be writing a thesis about that, um, because that would allow us then to get more South African youth to, to become entrepreneurs, because that, that fear of, you know, losing it all, you always see that narrative, businesses closing down. There's too much fear on it. People want safety, they want jobs, they want to be able to contribute. Um, and basically just get to the point where they can be comfortable. And so it's almost, yeah, it's, it's a South African entrepreneurs um, are really risk, big risk takers, especially ones who, who can't fall back on safety nets. Um, and how we allow more people to take risk and be comfortable fail, failure, maybe that's where we should be investing money and not investing it in programs and various funds that never gets to the entrepreneurs. Um, maybe just call it a failure fund, which hopefully Cyril could, the president Cyril Ramaphosa could start up instead of, you know, trying to create all these jobs and putting these lofty targets of job creations, which we don't know how sustainable they are. Um, I love the idea of, of a failure fund. And it makes me um, 
you know, think of a, um, of the work that you're doing, Alana, in, you know, youth development and the different players that, that you engage with. What do you think are some of the barriers that prevent the multiple players in the sector from engaging to perhaps create something like a failure fund that could potentially maybe reduce the risk of young people, you know, wanting to start their own businesses or, or any other kinds of ventures? Look, I think that, I think there's a couple of factors. Um, I think that, I think a lot of people out there are very genuine about um, wanting to create change, but I think that there's also a lot of fear around um, around funding and money. Um, and and I think one of the things that prevents people from from collaborating is a a fear of sharing what I've got with what you've got, because in case you get the money that, that's allocated to me or that that I need in order to to sort of survive as my organisation and. Um, I would. Uh, I, I I don't have the, the the stats or the evidence, but I'd hazard a guess that a, a, a large percentage of organisations working in the youth development space are probably NGOs, um, as opposed to organisations that are generating their own revenue streams. Um, and you know, we already have challenges with competitiveness in in the business world, and we're told that that's a good thing, and to some extent it is. But you know, that's also debatable in terms of economic theory. Um, and, um, you know, you, you, so you end up with competitiveness in, in this NGO landscape because there's, there's funding that's out there. Um, and, and, you know, to be honest, sometimes people also, you know, we, we are all human and we like to take credit for the work that we've done. And, um, I think that sometimes the desire to take credit for the work that your organization has done can, um, or that you perceive that you've done can be a stumbling block to actually collaborating with, with others. Um, because if we work together, then, then who gets to claim what credit? Um, so, and, and I, I don't want to put that in a negative light, but I, so I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying to put it in a sort of, uh, a reasonable light as, as possible. But I, I definitely think that that is one of the challenges. Um, and, you know, when it comes to a failure fund, um, again, I think mindsets here, are, are important and, and difficult to overcome. Um, I mean, Chad's comments were absolutely right. You know, in South Africa, we don't, I was coming again from a position of privilege, you know, in terms of, of, of failure, but, but most people in this country don't have the, the, the opportunity to fail. Um, what, they, what they've done in, in some of the Scandinavian countries is you've got a basic income and therefore you can go off and do something, you can try something new, you can do something like that because the, the, the potential for failure doesn't mean you don't have a home and food to eat and things like that. You've got those basics in place. The, the challenge in South Africa, I think, is we still have a mindset um, uh, that, that thinks failure is a bad thing. Um, you know, to put, to put public money and, and often NGO money and money from government is typically public money into a fund where we're calling it a failure fund, I think is an absolutely fantastic idea. The problem is that when, when I've, when I've spoken to other individuals about this, the, the issue is that, um, that, that, well, now we're going to fail with, with public money. And now we haven't shown the, the return for public money. And, and there's a focus on the financial return rather than the, the impact return. And we have to then come up with a, a um, I think a very strong case for what is an impact return look like. And we have to show that that impact return is much greater than just the sum of, well, we gave some money to these businesses and they failed because it's much, much more than that. People had jobs for a certain amount of time. They got experience. They got um, skills. Businesses, entrepreneurs do tend to fail, but, they, the, 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 you know, they, they tend to also get up again, especially if they've got that support. So so for me, I think um, – it's, and, and I've actually done quite a lot of work in, as I said earlier, in the impact investing venture philanthropy space. 
there's, there's, there, there's no money out there for failure funds. And if there is, I haven't been able to find it. Um, and, and so I think it's, a, I think it's what's needed. Um, so I think Chad is right. Uh, but how we do it, I, I, I you know, we, we, there's a lot of now venture, um, NGO money going into impact investing. And, and, and I think a switch in focus for financial return. And if we could harness some of that money to say, guys, you know, let's, let's stop. Impact investing is a good thing, but let's stop. Let's not only put money into that now away from NGOs. Let's look at a more addressing more systemic issues. Um, and, and putting a fund together for that, and then that's grant money that, that no one expects to get back, but we are expecting certain outcomes. No, no, I appreciate. I mean, these aren't easy, you know, challenges, and I, and I recognize that the questions are complex, and there's no and there's no easy answers. But but thank you for like you know and grappling with these because I think that's the only way we can sort of get to the place where we want to go. And in and in systems change, we acknowledge that the work that we do to create you know transformation in society and a just and equitable society is slow work. Um, it's not quick work. Um, so I think that's something that we always have to, you know, have at the back of our minds. But this almost brings me then back to to you, Chad, and, and the work that you're doing at Regionize. And I, and I recognize that one of the things that we've done in, in this podcast is that when we speak about youth, you know, we speak about, you know, this cohesive, as if it's a cohesive group. But we recognize that youth and the challenges that youth face aren't, you know, cohesive. I mean, if you're living in an urban area or in a rural area, the challenges that you're facing are vastly different. And, and Chad, you mentioned if you have an opportunity to go to university and if you don't, you know, the labor market and how it responds to you is going to be very different. So I'm wondering, Chad, when we're thinking about centering the voices of, of young people, whether it's, you know, in activism, whether it's in policy development or even just, you know, the corporate space, how do you think we can leverage off of that better to bring out the voices that perhaps we're not hearing? And I appreciate that I'm not asking you to speak for, for the whole community, but just from your experience and the work that you're doing, particularly because you're also working with people who were in the informal sector and now you're moving them into the formal sector. So you're getting two sides of the story and what that experience has been like for you. Conversations are really important um, and understanding everybody and where they're coming from, et cetera, et cetera. Um, especially our lessons working in the space with informal waste collectors. Um, you know, there was a big, big learning curve for us as an organization to understand firstly, you know, what is it that they, what, what is it that they want? Um, at the beginning, it was all about, we see this vision for ourselves and the regionized mission and the vision. And, you know, as we, as we grew that, we, we kind of realized that we haven't made it as inclusive as we thought we were, you know, and, and it's all about that word inclusivity, which, which it's, there's so much levels of it and there's an actual, you know, ladder of inclusivity. And I think a lot of people overuse the term um, by just saying we're inclusive because we're including people, but it's all about, you know, how deep you want to go. And we, we had conversations, we've asked them from a structural point of view, how should it work, you know, watch what what is needed because we don't have all the answers um and by only conversing and having the, taking the time for those meaningful meaningful conversations only then can we really get to understand what it is that needs to be changed um and this is just talking about our experience working with them um but from a from a from a general youth um position it's really tough um like you said this question itself um there's so many youth to different issues, different backgrounds, um, youth in organizations or corporate world, they're facing their own issues um, that they'd like to see changes in. 
Um, and that stems from various aspects. And then you have, you know, the, the unemployed youth who's, who's struggling with finding work, um, just to get an opportunity. Um, and I don't have the answer for it. I wish I did. Um, it's such a complex issue. We've been highlighting, you know, the levels of unemployment. Um, and all I can really say is that, you know, we at least trying to, to develop that inclusiveness um, in the way we build forward instead of just using going things um going as to sorry business as usual BAU um, and I think it's important that this moment we're taking now this moment we're in um, this lockdown this pandemic it's almost like a pause um, where we can really start reflecting on everything and how things are being done and having conversations like this and actually start making that changes moving forward um, and implementing those changes. Alana and Chad, thank you so much. I know the, the questions were, were challenging, but thank you for engaging with them and grappling with them in earnest. Um, and as I said earlier, there are no, no easy answers. As you'll discover through this podcast series, we enjoy sharing real on the ground success stories. In our goodness segment today, we'll be chatting with some inspiring young people from an on the ground youth organization from Freigrond here in Cape Town. Hi, this is Fergus Turner, and I work on the Systems Justice Team at the Bertha Centre. Today, we'll meet activists and entrepreneurs from the Freigrond Unite for Change movement, a youth movement for social action and systems justice, making waves here in Cape Town. In just four weeks, Freigrond United for Change was formed as a community response to COVID-19. Collaborating closely with the Musenberg Community Action Network, things happened fast. The group of volunteers ensured that everyone in the community had access to at least one meal a day relatively close to home. They identified existing community kitchens, set up 10 new community kitchens and equipped these kitchens with growing urban food gardens. In addition, they launched a fundraising campaign and set up food distribution systems. They were able to gather lots of resources to assist in their efforts, including sewing machines, printers, stoves, pots and available spaces. They gathered seamstresses, social workers, business mentors, local traders and women willing to cook. On top of that, a group of young women started a dignity drive, distributing sanitary pads and toiletries to the women in the community. Let's find out more from Freigrond Unite for Change team. Welcome. Thank you so much for being with us here today. Um, so when it comes to youth in South Africa and being a young person in 2020 during these very interesting times, um, what have you been up to, uh, specifically in Freigrond? Uh, if you could let us know a little bit more about the vision around Freigrond Unite for Change. The element of what we started, it was uh, fully started back then, the time of the pandemic was starting early, start of the year on March, because uh, the focus it was being in a space where you find there's like uh, we unprivileged on certain tools that government can provide to us. Uh, we don't have like full services that are more can help us as a community. So we've met up with a group of us. Uh, some of us we've part of different initiatives like uh, like from Amava Oluntu. There was a program called Vukuzanzelem. So the invitation was through that. And then the meeting of like the cans, so there was been like this process of people building uh, cans to work against like the COVID nineteen. This is uh, such a mobilization. Why start now? 
Um, we saw the need because people, most of the people were unemployed. So it was difficult for them to provide food for their families. So we started uh, something like kitchens where we cook for um, the families, where uh, kids and older people will come for a meal. So which was very helpful to them because they didn't have enough to spend, like to buy groceries. Um, if you could tell me, like with this idea of um, thinking big, because there's a lot of big thinking here about mm. how your experiences here come Freigrond, Musenberg, mm. relate to the broader experience of young people in the country. Mm. Tell me, where do you think Freigrond Unite for Change might be in a year's time? Our focus is to use these um, like mobilizing groups and creating awareness spaces that can uh, create an, an outreach and also grow uh, communities from townships to villages. So we will start with Freyhunt. We'll create like our element from scale of now to set up like a business hub center with also social worker center and also have like also entrepreneurial spaces for people to run catering companies. Uh, we do events. What are the lessons you've learned? What really works in getting young people involved in taking action? Yeah, what I can share, like firstly, uh, me as I'm driven by passion uh, of uh, changing the space that I'm in. Secondly, from the like the experiences that I've had and seen from maybe a neighbor or a family member, even also to myself, uh, challenges that we've passed through, they also create uh, and then they add a spark to a person that to to stand up on your own. Uh, if maybe something are not happening in, like, because uh, one thing I have seen, like this spoon feeding of um, a person giving you that new, taking it charge of learning and also using like um, the element of saying each one teach one or, or like, yeah, for me to understand things, rather you don't provide like a fish, rather teach me how to fish so I can utilize my time frame. If you, you're not around, you're gone, then I can continue, then I can share the skills also because that's what's needed now in, in the lifetime that we're living. So it's changed from the inside yeah, out. Change, yeah. Is there one other lesson that you can share from your experience mobilizing young people in Freigrond and Capricorn? Um, mobilizing young people is not an easy thing. What I've seen that is that um, some of them have a low self-esteem. Mm. So what we, norm we normally do, we just reach out to them so that they could come closer and see what our vision is. What is your dream for the role of young people in recreating a better South Africa uh, during these times of crisis? Mm, um, my passion is more based on art. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm fully in love with art and also a bit of uh, apparel, like uh, clothing concepts, because I'm in a mission of uh, starting a movement that represents the authentic element of being in Africa as a child and also through using forms of art, using forms of music and fashion. So my direction is to run a, a program like that will tell a clear story of us as Africans, but through um, like like visuals by wearing something or like the message that we might spread, like the spirit of Ubuntu, uh, like like statements like Aluta, like but in a concept that's more conscious. I, I like to share a conscious side to people and change this negativity of hey, I, me, I'm this, I'm that to a positive element like now. I'm in a direction of creating an awareness uh, 
of being a African, it's so very blessed to be an African. And the arts and the yeah. stories and yeah. the narratives that already exist are powerful in helping to change that consciousness. Yes. Um, my vision is that um, is helping people. I I do like I love helping people. Like um, for example, when I'm serving people in my kitchen, I normally look at the faces when I see the young kids, the little kids that come and fetch food from our kitchens. I see the, the joy they have when they come to me. Thank you so much for being here and thank you so much for sharing your lessons and your perspectives on not just the future of your project and your movement, but the future of all young people in South Africa. It's no secret that the youth of South Africa are a powerful force of nature when empowered, supported and believed in. Despite the many challenges they face, South African youth also have a knack for spotting opportunities and wowing the world around them with their innovation, creativity and perseverance. We should be on the edge of our seats as we witness how they are going to influence the reimagining of our society post-COVID-19. Thank you for tuning in to Just For A Change, powered by the Bertha Centre for Social Innovation and Entrepreneurship, the podcast where we offer new perspectives on social innovation and social justice. If you're curious about solving social issues in your community or believe we can make a positive, tangible difference in the world, then make sure you subscribe so that you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes. Also, remember to have a look at the show notes if you're interested in finding out more about the Bertha Center for Social Innovation and Entrepreneurship.